Hello and welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast. Yes, hello, and we are a podcast all about the science of wildlife gardening with me, Ben. And me, Ellie. And what we got coming up today? We are totally jam-packed today. We are going to be talking a little bit about No Mow May because we're obviously coming to the end of that and I'm sure lots of you have had your mowers out over the long weekend. And Ben is also going to talk us through phenology, which is going to be an interesting chat. Yeah, the science of the timings that things happen throughout the year. As we've been away, we're going to cram things in today a little bit because we've also got... The first half of our interview with Dr. Emma Sherlock, and then we have the beautiful purple moorgrass as our native plant of the week. But before we go into any of that, let's just do our sightings as normal. So, what have we seen in gardens in the last couple of weeks, Ali? We've seen loads of things. I can barely even list them. But I think the the top thing for me was um, Blaps Mucronata. Blaps. Blaps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is the churchyard beetle, which funnily enough was actually found in an old rectory. Um, well, it's next to a churchyard. It is next to a churchyard. It was living up to its name. And they used to be really common in cellars and barns and sheds and things. They like dark places. And in, in fact, they're actually part of the darkling beetle family. Mm, so. Large-ish black beetle. Really beautiful. Very large, I'd say. A couple of centimetres long with a sort of point towards it, the end of its elytra, its wing casing. It's very Ooh, beautiful. Very nice. beautiful. We've also seen many other types of beetle and in particular, lots of ladybirds. Um, We found, well, actually, I didn't find it. It flew and landed on my glasses while I was at work, (laughs) but a 14 spot ladybird, which was really exciting. And then I did, um, we do a Wild Wednesdays on our business page and just do a bit of a showcase about uh, a species that we've encountered in, in that any given week. And apparently they overwinter sometimes in beech mast in beech nuts. I can see that being a nice house. Yeah, me yeah, too. They must be fairly waterproof. I guess And they so. last for years. Yeah. The, beach, yeah. The, the husks of the beech nut, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. I'm sure lots of things do overwinter in beech mast, I'd imagine, because of it, that. But yeah, I thought it was very particularly interesting. Yeah, nice. My big one, well, we actually both saw this. We went down to NEP, to the Wildland Project, uh, a couple of weeks ago now, Does this we? count as a sighting in a garden? Well... It's a pretty big garden, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But, well, yeah, no, you're right. But it's it's just so good. We were in... One, they've got these tree houses as you go around the site. And we were up one of these. We watched a, a sawfly come down. It was in an, in an oak tree. And we saw this sawfly. They, they come down on a thread of silk from the leaf down towards the ground. So we were watching it as it as it trailed its way down. And then a parasitic wasp, while it midair, came and landed on it. And well, it was about five, ten minutes of it stabbing eggs. It was quite gruesome. Into this sawfly. You need to imagine this sawfly is a, less than a millimetre thick. And the parasitic wasp was tiny as well. Um, it was all black. I've got no idea what the species was. But No, please forgive us because there are about 6,000 species of parasitoid wasps <laughs> yeah. out there. So, yeah, quite hard to identify when you're up a treehouse. <laughs> yeah, but there was, sort of, there was us two. There was our mate Gareth and then uh, another couple were there as well. They happened to be up this treehouse at the same time. And we were all watching, fascinated as this miniature spectacle of nature just happened right in front of our eyes. You honestly would have thought that 
there was some sort of lion chasing down an antelope <laughs> on the Serengeti. Like the five, yeah. five of us, four, five of us were just stood there mesmerized by this thing that we just witnessed. And the chances were just so slim that we were going to see that. So that was actually quite special. Yeah, but that sort of interaction is happening in all of our gardens all the time. Like we were just um, in a garden yesterday and there was a load of sawfly on, it was on a Solomon seal. Yeah, the saw, well, the Solomon seal sawfly, yeah, funny yeah. enough. I'm absolutely sure that in that garden there will be parasitic wasps there coming and parasitising those sawflies as well. Yeah, with 6,000 of them, it's very likely there's going to be a species out there for that sawfly, isn't it? Yeah, keep your eyes open, guys. And it gives you even more excuse, if as if you didn't need another one, to sit in your garden with a lovely cup of tea or a yeah. glass of wine. Or in your treehouse. <laughs> yeah, kick the kids out the treehouse. <laughs> yeah, why do they and... get all the fun? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what plants are looking good at the moment? Pretty much everything. Yeah. <laughs> Now's the time, isn't it? This is uh, my favourite time of year. Even May when it's June. 12 degrees, like today. Yeah, well, that's... The, I am... Oh yeah, we've talked about this. So, yeah. Caveman. Yeah. <laughs> it's all the hair, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. This is the <laughs> ideal temperature for me, even while everybody else complains. Shrubby sinkfalls, which we've covered on the, the podcast before. That's a shrubby potentilla uh, that lots of people have in their gardens, full of flower at the moment. But they will keep flowering as well. That's the best thing about them. Yeah. Like for months, they're amazing. Yeah, they're really, really good and great for wildlife as well. Keeping on the native plants, uh, a variety of a native plant called Persicaria bistorta, um, there's a, a really common variety called Superba, which is grown in loads of gardens. They are looking stunning at the moment. They've got pink flower heads, little spikes about two or three inches tall. Yeah, like elongated pompons. Yeah, I think. Oh, that's a really good yeah. description. Yeah, little fuzzy things. Yeah, and they are <laughs> adored by bumblebees, particularly. And we were in a garden. We've got a, a video on our Twitter page at the moment of. There were three or four species of bumblebee just on this one clump of, of persicaria, but loads of them. And We've also seen loads of flies, just to give the flies a shout oh, out. Yeah, that's true. When yeah. we were at Wisley, was it? I think there was some flowering there last year. They loved it. We were watching for ages. Good memory. I've forgotten that. On, I never forget a fly. On the, fl- <laughs> <laughs> on the flies... In our own garden, they really like the Pfizer and we've got a variety, I think it's called Diablo. I'm pretty sure that's the one we've got. Yeah, it's an absolutely perfect plant for a small garden because it makes a, a large shrub or a, a small tree, depending on how you prune it. But yeah, absolutely loved by by all sorts of flying pollinators at the moment. I absolutely love that shrub. But on the topic of shrubs, I did just put a tweet out um, earlier about Nick Chu et al, have to say that, because lots of different scientists did this, showing that shrubs flowering shrubs if you choose them really well are so so good for pollinators because there's so much flower on one plant it's just a really good thing to have in your garden particularly if you've got a small space yeah and if any of you've done no mo may you might be finding all sorts of things springing up in in your lawn things like uh, corn cockle looking really good at the moment just coming out in fact in nottingham um, poppies are looking good loads of ragged robin and yellow rattle coming out at the moment and um, ladies smock as well yeah the cuckoo flower yep that's been out for a while and that is the food plant of course for the larval food plant for the orange tip butterfly as well yes, so indeed. help those guys out by having some of that yeah, there's been actually quite a few of our clients um, who have independently done No Mo May this year and we've been absolutely chuffed. 
And a final plant that is looking really, really good at the moment is, well, a few of the salvias, not all of them. Some of them flower a bit later on. But we've got, I think it's a microphylla species. Um, and it was hot lips. I think everyone knows about hot lips. We've got a blue one as well, though. We do also have a deeper purpley blue one, which is really pretty. They're currently flowering, and we know for a fact that they will just keep going now until the first frost. So they're a really fabulous plant to have in your garden. What's your favourite one, the lemony one called? Oh, uh, La Mancha, I think it's called. Uh, It's like a lemony yellow with a peachy tinge sort of around the base of the flower. It's absolutely stunning. Yeah, and the leaves are scented as well. Yeah, and those are the plants that you're most likely to see bumblebees with short tongues robbing the nectar of, which we've talked about before. So it's quite entertaining as well when you're sat next to it. Floral larceny, if you can remember that. Moving on to our first topic for today, we're going to take a little look at the study of phenology, the science of the timings of natural events. And we've talked about this a little bit on the podcast before, especially in relation to the episode we did on feeding birds. That was it, it. yes. Some new science has come out recently and we want to cover this. So a paper was released at the beginning of this year called Plants in the UK Flower a Month Earlier Under Recent Warming. This paper is all about the science of phenology, and phenology, by the way, is P-H-E-N, so that's phen with a P-H. Not phrenology, the Greek science of studying the bumps on people's skulls, (laughs) (laughs) just in case anyone was getting that confused. Yes, thank you, Ellie. (laughs) So this is the science of, it's basically looking at things like when the first blackthorn blossom emerges in the spring, for instance, and you can track that over time. And what they're looking at in this paper is how those timings are changing with climate change. This paper took the longest time series of observations for a UK phenological study that's ever been done. So they took observations from 1753 right up to 2019. And they used historical data and modern observations, which form part of the Woodland Trust's Nature's Calendar, which is a it's a project, it's a phenological project, basically. Um, so they've got a database, um, and they also took information from the Central England Temperature Series. Now, normally, phenological studies only look at a handful of species. So the Met Office, they produce their own study on this. They have a phenological supplement, And this focuses only on 11 species, and these species are all trees. But this new study was different, as it took in both trees and shrubs, as well as climbers and herbaceous plants too. They found that by analysing 419,354 observations of the first flowering date from 406 plant species in the UK, that spring has moved forwards in the year by 26 days over that period. Wow, that's such a long time. I'm also really grateful for the scientists that actually sit down and do this because the patients must be uh, quite large (laughs) for those people. (laughs) To do the analysis, they divided the data into two periods. So we have older than 1987 and equal to or more recent than 1987. For the older group, the first flowering date was 132 so what that means is the first flowering date was the 132nd day of the year and for the more recent group it was the 106th day of the year 
So that's a shift from the 12th of May to the 16th of April. Now, remember, this is an average of over 400 species, right? So yes, some species like blackthorn flower much earlier in the year than that, but others flower later. So we are taking an average here. And it's an average for the whole country as well. So there are differences in first flowering dates between the north and the south of the country, but also between urban areas and rural areas with a heat island effect that you get. All of these considerations are laid out in the study, and this study is actually open access, which is fantastic. So if you want to read more about it, then just follow the links in the show notes. Now, in tandem with these temperature observations, they found, and I quote, a highly negative correlation with January to April maximum temperatures over the British Isles. So that means basically the warmer the year, the lower the first flowering date, meaning first flowering happens earlier in the year. So we all know if spring comes early, that's what they're saying, it gets warm early, then things flower early. So here we have real evidence of what gardeners are experiencing year after year, because I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people saying their daffodils are flowering earlier or certain shrubs are coming out earlier. And it is true. Yeah. And there is actually a bit of a problem with, so in this country, we still do get some quite nasty frosts in spring. So obviously the earlier the flowers are opening, the more at risk they are from those late frosts. And we are tending to get late frosts. You know, they're quite short, sharp events, but that can have quite a big effect on those flowering plants. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So we wanted to talk about this because there's lots of impacts that changing season can have on our environment. The authors of the study say, and this is a quote, large changes in first flowering dates are expected to disrupt community composition and interaction. Ecological mismatch can increase extinction risks and loss of ecosystem services. Now, this risk of ecological or phenological mismatch is something we talked about before, again, on the episode we did about feeding birds. So there are all these general examples of how this mismatch is happening, but I wanted to give you a real concrete one. And I'm going to reference a particular species here called the early spider orchid. Now, it's an orchid called Ophrys sphegodes. A few years ago, a study came out called Vulnerability of a Specialised Pollination Mechanism to Climate Change Revealed by a 356-Year Analysis. These titles are very snappy, aren't they? Yeah, they're really catchy. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, science. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just funny watching you get your mouth around them. Spring goes quicker. That'll do it, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Well, in this study, they looked at the interaction of this orchid, the early spider orchid, with their specialised pollinator, a particular solitary mining bee called Andrina nigroania. Now, to understand what this study was looking at, we need to know a little bit about the sex life of this bee. Of course you do. (laughs) I just want to put a bit about the sex life of these things in any any part of our podcast. Yeah. Um, so in spring, the males emerge first, and apparently this is quite common for bee species, and they are then followed by the females. Historically, the females have started flying around six and a half days after the males. So for six days or so, the males are just knocking around, basically waiting for the females to turn up. The early spider orchid has evolved to take advantage of this gap. The flowers of this orchid emit a floral bouquet that strongly resembles that of virgin female bees, attracting the males in and deceiving them into attempting to mate with the flower, which in turn pollinates them as the bees move from one flower to the other. And this process is something called pseudocopulation. In most years, 
males emerge before the peak flowering of the orchid. But this floral bouquet is only released when the flowers are fresh. So by the time females emerge, they aren't in competition with the male bees. In order, it's male bees emerge, orchids flower, males attempt to mate with the flowers, the flowers die off, female bees emerge, males mate with females. Or that's how it's supposed to work anyway. The study found that this timing is going out of whack. Both the bees and flowers are emerging earlier, but their adaptations to climate change are actually different. Peak flying dates for male and female Andrina nigroania advanced by 10.51 and 15.09 days respectively. Okay, so the males have advanced 10.51 days, but the females have advanced more, 15.09 days. But the advance in the flowering date of the orchid was just 6.21 days. This means that the average time between peak flying date of male and female bees has fallen to just 1.93 days. That's the difference between the first flying date of the male and the female bees. That in turn has shortened the window for that orchid to get in the middle and to attract the male bees. And in some years, female bees now emerge before the flowers even get going. Peak flying date of the female bees actually preceded peak flowering in 80% of years between 1961 and 2014. As the authors of the study say, crucially, if flowering and female bee emergence coincide, or if female bees emerge earlier than the orchid flowers, pollination is likely to be reduced or even fail completely. And this is important because this orchid has already suffered a loss in its range of 60% from 1930. And pollination in this particular species is already quite inefficient and survival of seedlings to sexual maturity is rare. This process, this moving of the timing of flowering and bee emergence is really putting this orchid at danger of extinction, at least in the British Isles. And as Ben said, it's such a finely tuned sequencing. that It's actually phenomenal that we know about this. And th- but this is just one example. Yeah, exactly. Like you said, you know, there are thousands, probably more than that, of other examples of this fine-tuning being out of whack. Well, that's it. We only know about this happening because this particular species has been studied in such detail, but we have no idea what is happening to all the other, well, there's 1,600-plus native species to the UK, and we really don't know what is going to happen to all those other species. You know, We are unaware of the intricacies of the pollinator interactions with most species. So yeah, so when people say, oh, wouldn't it be nice, you know, spring's coming a bit earlier, isn't it so nice and warm? Well, these interactions are the ones that are being disrupted by climate change. What can you do about it? I don't really know. (laughs) Yeah, in your own gardens, it's pretty limited. You're not going to change these phenological timings. But I would say it's just another layer of um, evidence for, or sorry, against the use of any pesticides, keep food really plentiful uh, food of any kind you know all invertebrates um just make your gardens as rich and diverse as possible yeah and just try not to make climate change any worse if you can avoid it please <laughs> yeah but one thing that is going to help pollinators in your garden is no mo may and lots of people have been doing that up and down the country so now it's ellie's turn to talk a little bit about what to do no mo may is over It's now June and many of you out there will have been doing 
Plant Life campaign, No Mo May, which is an absolutely fantastic campaign that has absolutely taken off and captured the imagination of many gardeners, even ones that wouldn't necessarily enjoy letting their grass grow really long. And it's been wonderful driving around Nottingham to see so many beautiful flowering lawns, particularly in front gardens. We certainly have a few clients that have done it independently of us. We didn't even boss them around. So yeah, that's, that's right. Been quite exciting. Yeah, the idea has caught on on its own, hasn't it, really? Yes. But as I said, it's now June and a lot of you will be thinking about cutting down your new meadow. Now on Twitter, there are quite a few entomologists that have actually set up a bit of a backlash against No Mo May. And that is not against the idea of growing your lawn. They're very much for that. But what they're against is us all getting our our big machines at the end of the month and just strimming it down without thinking. Yeah, they're against the temporary idea of No Mo May. Exactly. Because if you think about it, if you do No Mo May and you let your grass grow really long and you get these beautiful flowers in it quite often, you're creating this absolutely valuable buffet and also a habitat for so many creatures. And quite often it's a really dense sward after 31 days of growth. And that's absolutely fantastic, but we can't often see what is lurking beneath all of that vegetation. And I wasn't aware of this until quite recently, but a lot of uh, hedgehog rehabilitation centres have reported a bit of a spike in hedgehog injuries, which is really, really a horrible thought to think about, um, where hedgehogs have come a cropper against strimmers, basically, because people aren't checking what's actually going on. And that goes for amphibians as well and many other larger creatures. So it got us thinking and we've done a lot of reading around this and Ben's actually written a really good blog on our website which is ellieswellies.com which essentially gives you an instruction as to what to think about when it comes to the end of that month if you are looking to cut your grass shorter again which is also totally fine by the way we're not saying that everyone needs to have a foot high meadow across the whole of their garden for the rest of the summer because in many cases that just isn't practical and also as we said before short grass is also a really really good habitat as well What it is really important to do is for the areas that you are going to cut short to really give them a proper check before you actually do any strimming. And Ben actually did this in a customer's garden just yesterday. They wanted their grass shortened, which was absolutely fine. And he took a strimmer and he did a really, really high cut so as not to risk catching anything that was lurking deeper down. And then he took a rake and basically collected up any of the clippings from that first cut and that gave time for anything that was lurking to start to move and basically just kept doing that until it became the height that he actually wanted it so I think you did about three cuts in the end so it really did give a lot of time for things to move away yeah I did a high cut a mid cut and then a low cut and as I was raking through between each one I was really carefully looking out especially for frogs yeah and frog lips because they can be very very tiny yeah Uh, at this time of year especially exactly And then another thing to consider is actually what to do with all that waste, because quite a lot of people will have just put it straight into the garden waste bin. But it's going to be absolutely teeming full of other invertebrates that we just can't see. So what we'd always encourage people to do, even if you're not going to compost it, which would be the best thing, but... If you could just find a corner of your garden just to pile that waste for a few days after you've cut it, then that gives time for any of those invertebrates to actually get out of that pile before you then throw that material away. And it's just a really good thing to do to minimise impact. The other thing that actually Plant Life wanted to encourage people to do was to leave an area of long grass standing 
We've mentioned this before. They called it the Mohican cut, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. By all means, have a short area of grass. But if you have done no mow may and you can leave a smallish area as long grass, then you're really going to be benefiting anything that has laid their eggs within that grass. So going back to the cuckoo flower and the orange tip butterfly, there's not really much point in them laying the eggs on the cuckoo flower if you're then just going to cut it down and put <laughs> exactly. it all in the compost bin. And it just gives things like grasshoppers as well a chance to live out their entire life cycle. What I think I find quite interesting, actually, but it gives opportunity within your garden to really change the look of it over each year because they encourage you to change the area that you leave as long grass. So you sort of get into a bit of a cycle with it. And I think you can really play around with that idea as well and, and yeah, really change the way your garden looks. Go ahead and read this blog on our website because also if you're thinking ahead to next year about what you want to do, there's some advice in how to plan which areas to uh, to leave long and which to leave short. If you can plan ahead and choose which areas to leave long permanently, then that is much better than growing an area long and cutting it down. But then if, you know, you need your lawn for playing football, for lying around in, whatever, barbecues, whatever it is, it's also really good to just mow your short grass slightly less frequently. If you only mow it every two or three weeks, then you're still giving chance for the clovers, for the daisies, for the lesser hop trefoils, uh, the self-heels to grow up and flower before you mow them. Yeah, it's all about gardening gently. Before we go on to the first part of our interview with Dr Emma Sherlock... We thought we would explain where we've been the last couple of months. We went into hiding. We did. Well, I felt really bad because we had this fundraiser, didn't we? And we stopped the fundraiser and disappeared. <laughs> yeah, it sort of looked like, you know, we we're going to set we up run off. home, run off, emigrate. With <laughs> yeah, with my new two microphones and <laughs> recording deck. Yeah, no, we haven't run off. Um, we had a, an update podcast, you know, just a short one, but I, I see most people haven't listened to that. So if you aren't aware, basically we caught COVID and we got it not as bad as some, but but pretty bad. And uh, we had to take basically a couple of months off the podcast and we took quite a lot of time off work and things as well. So it's taken us a, a quite a while to get back into... Uh, well, just having the headspace to do it really, hasn't it? I was going to say, out of the brain fog, because yeah. that really is a thing. Although lots of friends probably would just say that they couldn't notice any difference <laughs> between pre and post. <laughs> Very supportive friends. Yeah. No, I, well, I just wanted to say thank you to everyone that got in touch, actually, because while we have been off, we've had quite a few listeners that did ask where we were and which was very heartening actually it was very lovely and lots of well wishes so yes it's absolutely fantastic to be back um we don't feel too out of practice do we uh well we'll see because i have to edit our ramblings later (laughs) 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 yeah but thank you for everybody who's yeah who's sent in a message and to everybody who's listening because i've been watching our numbers go up and up even while we have not been doing any podcasts well, this is it's it we basically incredible. just gave you all all the newcomers a chance to catch up that's what we were really doing well our average listenership to each episode is between 1500 and 2000 people which is just incredible yeah <laughs> that and and we must have had i don't know 20 or 30 people over the time get in touch with us so that means there's 
whatever well over a thousand people out there who are just listening and you know we don't even know who you are so thank get you for touch. tuning in but yeah get in touch because we want to hear we started we're really trying to do this segment on the podcast called gardening correspondence where you send in a, a short clip five minutes or less just of what you're doing for wildlife in your own garden whoever you are whether you're a beginning gardener or a professional it doesn't matter we want to hear from you but nobody's sending them in so send one in we've Don't got an email address the wildlife garden at hotmail.com record on your phone email it in and we will put you in a podcast yeah, we want to know who you are, what you do as a day job as well, because there's such a huge variety of people out there that do garden for wildlife. And we want to get that across that it's not just us professional gardeners that are doing this. And we know it's not because you have sh- shared with us lots of photos of your meadows and things over the last couple of months. But yeah, we really do want to hear from you and know what you've done for wildlife. While you're getting those segments recorded, send in to us. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter, we are twitter.com forward slash the wild GDN. And on Facebook, it is forward slash the wildlife garden podcast. So now we've plugged ourselves. <laughs> Let's give a little plug to Dr. Emma Sherlock, who is the senior curator of annelids at the Natural History Museum. What she doesn't know about worms, which is the group that includes annelids, is not worth knowing. So we went down to interview her in the wildlife garden outside the museum. And here is the first part of our interview with her. Hello, Emma. Lovely to meet you, finally. Yes. Yeah, lovely to meet you too. Yeah, COVID's got in the way of this interview a few times, hasn't it? So it's really lovely to be here at the Natural History Museum to finally meet you. Oh, it was really lovely to, to have you here and get to be outside and talk about worms. Yeah, we're stood in the wildlife garden and yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Bar a little bit of traffic, but the birds have been singing and yeah, the blossoms out. It's wonderful. Now, in our household, we've been very, very excited to finally meet the senior curator of worms. But I know that's not your official title, is it? So do you want to just give a brief introduction to our listeners about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Emma Sherlock and I work at the Natural History Museum and I'm the curator of annelid worms. So these are the segmented worms. So we've got the polychaetes, which are the marine bristle worms. You probably know them like the lugworms and ragworms. Um, Then we've got the earthworms, which is my kind of research area so they're they're kind of my favorites although I love them all I love them all (laughs) Um, and the other group are the leeches so these you probably know as well from being like amazing and medicinal uses in the in the past but you'll also see them in your ponds and 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 things like that so they're the main three groups of annelids well, thankfully, we're not acquainted with leeches, but, <laughs> but we do know that they are generally a force for good. But yes, we're here to talk about the segmented worms, and I'm really excited about this because, like any gardener, I mean, we both love them. But we'll get into that in our questions. So we all, we all learn to recognise what a worm is from basically being a child. But I was wondering if you could like expand on, I guess, where we all we stop learning, don't we? At sort of age three, probably, uh, when we know what they look like. But do you want to just run through the main biological features of an earthworm? 
Sure, yes. So it's true. When with three-year-olds, everyone's really, really excited about worms and then somehow something gets in the way and suddenly they seem to become yucky, which is not true. They're not. They're still fascinating. Um, so, so, yes, if you have a look at uh, worms, what you'll see is the segmented worms. You can actually really see those, those segments. So a polychaeta, as I mentioned, those marine ones, an earthworm and a leech, they all have these segments. And then with, uh, with earthworms and leeches, they then come apart from the polychaetes because they have these um, clitellums or fleshy bands. So anytime you're digging up your soil and looking for an earthworm, you'll know if it's an adult because it has this really clear fleshy, fleshy band on it. And that means it's a, yeah, a clitellate animal and that's to do with the way they reproduce. So yeah, earthworms and leeches are separated off there. And then obviously to separate those two, you're looking for the suckers. So uh, the leeches have the suckers. So an earthworm is a segmented worm with a clitellum, but no suckers. Right. Wow. What what function does the clitellum have? Because I, I, I do know what you mean. Like band, you see, I think even kids would know to draw that you know in a cartoon worm if you like but yeah what function does that have i'm quite interested ah well that helps to produce um the the fluid that comes off to form its little cocoon i don't know if you're looking in especially in your compost because it's much clear clearer there but even in your soil you'll see these um little round sort of yellowy um little round yellowy balls basically and these are the um cocoons for the earthworm so inside will be a baby a baby earthworm and when conditions are right those will come out so when um earthworms mate they they're actually hermaphrodites but they pass each other sperm that they sort of keep inside themselves and then when their eggs are ready the, that fleshy band will produce this uh, this thick wad of, of mucus basically which then comes over the head end and the stored sperm from the other worm and their own egg gets released into it it comes off the head end and then um, in the soil it hardens and yeah then the earthworms will hatch out when they hatch out depends on the species some it's only a week or so later others it's a lot longer but yes that's how, that's what they're for Wow, that is amazing. I don't think I've really considered where they come from. It sounds ridiculous. They're just sort of there, aren't they? I mean, it's very easy to take them for granted if you've got healthy soil and you have lots of them, I might add. But that's really, really fascinating. Amazing. We've also read, so we've done some limited reading, but we've read that you can group worms into ecotypes. Can you tell us and our listeners what an ecotype is and how they behave differently within each one? Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, earthworms are called basically ecosystem engineers. And I like that word because it is true. They really do make such a difference to the area they're in. And they don't all have the same role. So basically, these ecotypes are just grouping certain species into the different roles that they take up within the soils. So the earthworms that are the most iconic are probably the really large Lumbricus terrestris or night crawler that you'll see coming up at night time. And that's, um, that's actually grouped with a couple of the other bigger worms. And these are the anisic worms. So these ones actually have vertical burrows in the soil. And these are permanent burrows. They um, always keep the same ones. And, um, yeah, they are amazing for actually drawing organic matter from... dead organic matter from the surface into their burrows where it sort of rots underground and then brings this rich amazing organic material right down 
underground so then it can be broken down and used by all the all the plants but they're also really crucial for drainage so yeah letting um, all the water drippings trying to stop um, flooding as well so yeah these are these are incredible animals with these vertical bar- uh, vertical burrows but then you've got your endogaic worms now these are kind of powerhouses as it were so they're just under the surface and they're taking in the soil and then obviously mixing it with all their amazing bacteria in their gut breaking it all down enriching it getting loads of the carbon and nitrogen back into that soil and then booing basically yeah. under their surface <laughs> to uh, yeah then then release it all and it it basically also breaks up the soil with these horizontal burrows but also yeah makes the soil so rich for the plants that are there and then the last group are the epigeics and we group the composters in with them um, so they're the ones that don't consume the soil itself like the um, anesics but they're not dragging the uh, um, the organic matter down they're actually staying on the surface and just breaking all that dead organic matter down so we don't have piles of rubbish around us all the time they're breaking that down and again then pooing it out and and releasing it back onto the onto the soil so they all do really really important things but they're just a bit different Wow. So, yeah, they, they kind of work together, I guess, to do those different functions. Absolutely. Yeah. You want to have all the different ecotypes in, in wherever, you know, your garden or, or, or farmland or wherever it is. You want to have certain species from each of those ecological groups. I think the thing that has recently blown my mind is thinking about a woodland floor. So in the last, well, we're organic gardeners, as everyone listening should know, and we do t- try and leave leaf litter on our borders in a sort of I don't know not too deep so you don't smother the plants that are there but enough to cover the soil and we certainly did that in the last winter and it's already starting to sort of disappear those leaves and it just got me thinking about a woodland and how many leaves drop in the in the winter and autumn and where do they all go is that all through worm action is it mostly worm action dragging them down into the soil and breaking them up Yes, so other invertebrates also can play a part in beetles and, you know, um, there are other helpers with that. But yes, absolutely, earthworms play a huge part. If you, um, on, uh, I think it's on, on YouTube, but but you could even set up your own. If you, uh, yeah, get the night cams out and actually have a look, you can see how many dead leaves um, earthworms will be drawing back down into the soil. And it's incredible. I don't have the stats with me, but... um, uh, there are stats on how many tons of um, leaves Lumbricus terrestris can move, even wow. just that one species in a year. It's, it's just phenomenal. So they are absolute powerhouses at that. And hungry ones. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. I, I actually feel ever so slightly guilty if ever I'm doing a bit of weeding. And you can see quite often, it's like, it looks like a rolled up leaf, doesn't it? And then it's half um, buried in the soil. Yeah. And that's how I know there's not probably a worm underneath it having a good munch. But if ever I'm weeding and I accidentally brush away that meal, I just feel incredibly guilty afterwards. I always try and put it back so I can give it its food oh, back. That's really nice. Yeah, that, those are called Middens. Oh. And it's only Lumbricus terrestris that make the, the middens. But sometimes they do stick a leaf there just to, um, 
I think sometimes try and um, dissipate the water a bit so their burrows don't get completely filled up if it rains and things like that and a bit of protection. So you might not have taken their, their meal but I'm sure you've left them plenty of other leaves yes. if they were eyeing it up for later. Yeah, but so. now you've made me think that I've taken their roof yeah. <laughs> as well as their food. Well as long as you leave them other roofs around okay. they'll, be, they'll be good. I'll try not to be so guilty. <laughs> it's hard being organic isn't it? Yeah. Now, thinking about, you mentioned the poo earlier on, and most gardeners, most seasoned gardeners will know that that is known as worm cast as well. We just, we like saying poop, that's fine. Now, yeah, most of us know that it's good for the soil, but could you go maybe into a bit more detail about why it's good for the soil and why we should all be encouraging it as gardeners? Yeah, absolutely. So basically earthworms are real powerhouses at just converting all the nutrients um, in the soil through their gut because they have these mutualistic relationships with, uh, with the bacteria in there. And then they're able to release all these nutrients then back in, into the soil. So I'm rubbish at chemistry. So to actually go into all the different molecular changes, okay. I'm afraid I'm, yes. I have heard all the lectures before, but it, yeah, my brain can't store that information. But no, we know that they can release the nitrogen, release the uh, carbon, and it's to do with this yeah, symbiotic relationship between the bacteria in the gut and the earthworm itself that's obviously grinding everything up because um, they've got a crop and gizzard like a like a bird. Oh. So they grind everything up, which then makes it much easier for the bacteria in their gut to then really work on it and do these chemical transformations <laughs> yeah. um, in there. And then, yes, when it comes out, then it's all yeah, been um, ground down nice and small and smooth and the... Um, yeah the chemical changes have happened and basically it just means the plants are able to take those nutrients back up again and also as as we mentioned they're also then obviously breaking things up as well so plant roots can really get in there as well so decompaction of the soil and all of that um so yeah they're doing all of that goodness so those little like i always think it looks like um the, it, the poo's been sort of squeezed out of a tube of toothpaste. You can see those little piles. But obviously, what's on the surface is only a tiny amount of the earthworm cast. Most of that casting is happening underground. So it's, yeah, just a huge amount of really good, rich fertiliser for free. You're not having to buy it. Yeah. So, yeah, and that's what they're, they're doing underground. So when we say feeding the soil as gardeners, what we're actually doing is feeding the soil organisms and then they're doing the work. Yes, and the presence of earthworms because of this mutualistic relationship and also the fact that they're neutralising the pH and, and, you know, all of these things, they're actually changing the microbial activity that's going on under the soil. They're facilitating that. It's their presence that's making that that happens so yes all sorts of unseen things are uh, going on because of the earthworms it's just mind-blowing like <laughs> there's just so much stuff going on we're still on some soil right now and just to think that all that is happening underneath us <laughs> yes and again it's just that thing that they're working tirelessly underneath us yeah we we're not even we're not even seeing it whereas if you were having to do all of that yourself you were tilling all the the soil you were breaking it all up you were then having to get in all these fertilizers and composts and everything else 
yourself, that would be a huge amount of work and they're just doing it for us while we chat. You've just done an inadvertent, brilliant segue because my next question is, as gardeners, we obviously, we love working quite hard in our gardens. Are there any activities that are to the detriment of worms? Should we be looking out to avoid doing certain things or, or to change our practice somehow? Right, well, obviously, you guys are brilliant for being organic uh, gardens, which is great because obviously the worst thing for worms are all the chemicals going down, especially um, pesticides and things like that, that has a very detrimental effect for earthworms and I know from people writing it I understand that people's lawns are a prized thing um, but I do quite often get letters about people wanting to sort of remove the earthworms because of the the casts and that's yeah that, that yeah that would be a, a tragic shame I, I know the cast can look a bit funny but but that's what makes the lawn so healthy and lovely and um, yes, so my big thing is, is just yeah, um, as little chemicals as, as as you can. Obviously, digging, like I guess the the best cases are the kind of no dig yeah. sort of practices. But I, I understand in a garden that's that's very tricky, and not many earthworms would um, come to harm with digging. And even if you do slice an earthworm in two, it, it will regrow its its tail. It's yeah, you, you haven't um, you haven't killed it. Okay. Um, it will regrow a, a tail and things. So it, yeah, it's that's absolutely not not the end of the world at all. It, yeah, it's just really the chemicals that it, it's great to avoid it if you can. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, we yes. say this all the time. It just yeah, and, and fungicides as well as pesticides and I do herbicides. You, you, are you aware? I know you I'm, mentioned the chemistry. Yes, I'm not sure, but I think there's a lot more research that needs to be. Done. But we do know that, yeah, most of the chemicals going down aren't doing the earthworms much exactly. good. So precautionary principle. Just because the yes. information isn't there doesn't mean we should just carry on regardless. No. That's probably the worst thing anyone could do. Yes, yeah, I, I, th- I think it's probably common sense that most of these things aren't, aren't going to be great for the earthworms. They all leach into the soil and earthworms are very vulnerable to things like that because they breathe through their, their skin. They have a permeable skin, um, so... Um, so yeah, any of these chemicals get right into them. Yeah. So they are very vulnerable to anything you, you put down. Thank you so much to Dr. Emma Sherlock for that interview. It was really lovely to go to the Natural History Museum and have a chat all about worms. And we've actually got the second half full of even more tidbits coming up in the next episode. Yeah, it wasn't so wonderful for me because I got wheeled away from the Natural History Museum in an ambulance. Look at you trying to get all the sympathy. (laughs) I'll get my violin out. Yeah. That was the day I got really ill. <laughs> yeah, Ben Ben never gets sick and then he decided that his first illness was going to be an actual heart problem involving an ambulance coming into the Natural History Museum. It was all very dramatic. Yeah. But he's fine, aren't you? <laughs>
Are you fine? Well, I'm drinking half a pint of beer today, so I'm feeling okay. That means he's better. But no, thank you very much to Dr. Sherlock. And we look forward to more of that next time. I'm taking the helm this week with our native plant of the week. This week, we have chosen a grass because I don't think we've done a grass yet. And we wanted to mix it up because grasses are indeed very popular garden plants. Yeah, we had an episode on grasses, but we've never done one as our native plant. So we've chosen Melinia Carulia. <laughs> I can't pronounce this. Carulia. I don't think we've ever heard anybody say it. No. So that's what, how we're pronouncing it. Carulia. I've only done this five times. <laughs> or purple moorgrass, if you want to be able to say it. And included in this, as we will come on to, is the subspecies Carulia. So that's Melinia Carulia subspecies Carulia. And also the subspecies Arundinacea. Very nice. Thank you. Purple moorgrass is a native grass, hence us delving into it, and is also a really popular ornamental plant because of its purple-coloured flowers when they first emerge. Its specific epithet, Carulia, actually means deep sky blue, which is pretty close to purple, I suppose. Yeah, close enough. Close-ish. It's perennial, which means that it comes back each year, but it's also a herbaceous plant, which means that it dies down over the winter to regrow the following spring. Depending on the subspecies, it grows from between 15 centimetres, so very wee, up to 1.3 metres. But in rare cases, the tips of the flowers have been found to be up to 2.5 metres tall, with a monster. Now, before I describe the structure of this grass, I'm going to sound our technical botany klaxon. I don't know what that's going to sound like. Haven't decided yet. I'm going to download one and it's going to sound now. Botany. Thank you very much. Because as we said in an episode on grasses in general, they have a whole language of their own. Now this lesson can get very complicated very quickly. So as a mini lesson in grass anatomy, I've cherry picked some of the main parts of the plant to start everyone off. The blades are flat, between 3 and 12 millimetres wide and up to 45 centimetres long. It has stiff culms and the inflorescence is a panicle. These panicles are variable, some being dense and upright and others being open and loose. So within that mini description, there are the leaves, the stem and the flowers, just like in other plants. But with grasses, we use these different names. So the leaves are called leaf blades and those are the bits you generally chop up when you're mowing your lawn. Then we have the stem or the stalk on top of which you get the flowers but the stem is actually called a culm, that's C-U-L-M. And that's the bit you chew as you walk about as if you're trying to pretend to be words or gummage, which Ben actually does when we go walking. But I won't make any other comments about other similarities <laughs> you have with words or gummage. Quite a few. Yeah, the smell mostly. Oh! <laughs> Finally, the whole flowering cluster is called the inflorescence and this can exhibit different structures. In Melinia, it's a panicle where the flower branches into lots of little spikelets, whereas with something like wheat, the inflorescence is actually just a single spike. I will leave the anatomy there, but if you can just remember blade, culm and panicle, then you're off to a pretty good start. And if you do want to know more, do check out a couple of videos called Classes for Grasses. Classes for Grasses. Yes, thank you. Diversity there. (laughs) On YouTube, (laughs) presented by Sarah Shuttleworth, who's also a one-time gardening correspondent. So she did get in touch. 
So these are fantastic videos and the links are in the show notes. We've actually plugged them before, but I, I need to go back and rewatch them actually because they're so packed full of new words that I didn't know about. Yeah, they're for beginners. Really, really good. In fact, why not do it just before you do uh, any mowing of your of your lawn? Yeah. And then do a little identification game. Yeah, in fact, uh, one of our clients where I was doing this several I heights, saw this. I collected four species of grass and uh, thinking I'd bring them home and ID them and then I left them on a chair so they'll think I did some sort of very odd type of uh, flower arrangement for them before I left their garden I thought they'd done it I didn't realize that was you I looked at it and thought that's really beautiful yeah okay well there you go present for for our clients one last techie thing before we go into where they grow of the two subspecies one is a tetraploid And that means it has four sets of chromosomes instead of two. And it's usually much smaller with only a single culm. So remember, that's the stem that the inflorescence is on. And that's the subspecies Carulia. The other subspecies, Arundinacea, however, is larger with several culms. And because of this, that's the one we tend to find as a garden plant because we want bigger, more flouncy plants in our garden. So where do we find this in the wild? Purple moorgrass is native to all of Europe and parts of North Africa, to Turkey, Lebanon and Syria, then north up into Kazakhstan, Russia and Scandinavia. In the UK, it's found from sea level to 915 metres above in the Scottish Highlands and even up to 1,900 metres above sea level in the Alps. Despite its common name, purple moorgrass, it's not just a moorland plant and it is found throughout the UK. However, there is a distinct band between the Bristol Channel and the Wash through the middle of England where it's much less common. And I think this is partly why we're not that familiar with the species because neither of us have, well, both of us are from that band, aren't we? Taking all the subspecies together, it can grow on moors, heaths, bogs, fens, mountain grassland, cliffs and also lake shores, usually on seasonally wet acid sand or peaty ground, although there are actually populations on more alkaline base-rich soils, um, particularly the bigger Arundinacea subspecies. Saying all that, it's actually quite difficult to say what the natural distribution is, as particularly in the uplands, drainage, burning and grazing, boo, has fundamentally changed the natural plant community and this has had significant effects on populations of millennia again for more information on that check out the articles that we've put in the show notes what i'm quite sad about with this particular plant is the lack of folklore because we often do a a folklore medicinal uses of our native plants because quite a lot of them do have a history that you know a relationship with humans but for some reason grasses i I don't know if they just haven't caught the imagination yeah not so much even though they're such an important group but i just find that interesting so yeah if you know of a traditional use of purple moor grass then let's do get in touch please In the absence of that, it means we do get to go straight on to the sexual antics of the purple moorgrass. Reproduction happens in this species by cross-pollination between two different plants – All florets, and that's the individual tiny grass flowers which en masse make up an inflorescence, 
except the most apical are hermaphrodite and patandrous. And hermaphrodite, remember, means that they have both male and female sexual parts. But by being patandrous, the male organs actually emerge before the female ones. They're wind-pollinated, like lots of grasses, with the wind literally blowing pollen from one plant to another, with over 100 individual florets per panicle. Once pollination has occurred successfully, the panicles of the ripe seed are held on culms, which generally remain standing over the winter, which is another big plus for it being an ornamental grass, because quite often we look for those grasses that don't just flop at the first opportunity or the first frost or wind, because they look fantastic, don't they? And this is also of benefit to the plant because as winds rustle past those culms, the seed is dispersed really far and wide. It's quite small, so it can actually be carried in the wind quite far. When conditions are right, the seed will then germinate in spring. Actually, I say that, but despite the huge number of seeds they produce, purple moorgrass is happy to look after its own needs as most reproduction has been found to be vegetative. And this is by sending off lateral shoots which grow into new plants. Even in lab tests where conditions were really controlled, only around 11% of seed actually germinated successfully. Moving on to the wildlife that it supports. It's the food plant for several species. And in fact, there's actually a fly, Mateola molliniae, which is named after the plant itself. It also feeds caterpillars of moths, including the large ear and the marbled white spot, two that I don't know about. In fact, you really need to go mothing soon. It's time. And also the caterpillars of butterflies, including the Scotch Argus and the rare and reintroduced checkered skipper. Yeah, so the checkered skipper, it has different food plants in the south of its range, but in the north of its range. Yeah, purple moorgrass is is the number one, I think. Moving up a couple of notches in size, free-roaming ponies in the (laughs) new forest are apparently also big fans and it makes up to 20% of their summer diet. So keeps those ponies nice and healthy. And remember, all grass is a fantastic shelter for all manner of small mammals and birds and also insects and spiders. And in fact, you will see evidence of the spiders either in the morning dew or after a frosty night with their lacework webs lit up amongst the stems. It's the number one reason, in my opinion, to grow ornamental grasses is for for those spider webs. They are just so beautiful. Didn't know you felt so strongly about them. Yeah, I'm putting my flag in the sand and saying that is why we grow glasses. Glasses? Grasses. Hopefully we've given you a good idea of how it grows outside gardens, but let's now give it a bit of love as a garden plant. Not only is it great for wildlife, but it's also a nicely clump-forming plant, and it also has these verdant green leaves in the spring. That's then followed by these tall flower stems, especially in the cultivated varieties, that can reach up to 2.5 metres tall. And as we've said, they have these fantastic purple flowers. It really is very beautiful. Over the year, the flowers then fade to a burnt orange or yellow colour, as eventually does the foliage in the autumn. This foliage then keeps its colour and stands with the flower stems over the winter, sparkling in the frost, as we've said. And all you simply need to do as a gardener is cut it back when you see the signs of growth the following spring. So it's also very easy to look after. When it's too big, you can dig it up and you can also hack chunks off. That's the technical horticultural term. Yep to give to friends or to replant. But other than its annual haircut, it's a really easy plant to look after. So it's quite similar to Ben. I don't have an annual haircut. What are you, like 
once every decadal. <laughs> That's true. Only- Lifetime on my beard. <laughs> yeah, you won't let me near the beard with anything sharp. The only things you need to be careful of is that it does best on acid to slightly alkaline soil. So do know what your soil pH is. That's That just is a general tip for gardening. Dry shade is no good for it as well. And also in shade, you won't get the sun to pick up the subtle colours on the flowers and stem. Just a word of warning, it can be slow to get its feet down. So if you do pop it in your garden, be patient. But once established, it should be very happy and quite easy to look after. I should have also probably mentioned earlier, it is also fully hardy, which is sort of implied by it living on an exposed moorland in the wild. But you will have to wait until April or May, depending on the weather where you are, for it to burst into new growth. I think a mean air temperature of about 10 degrees centigrade will really get it going. Patience definitely uh, comes in in gardening quite often. So to get this in your garden, you can grow it from seed, although establishment is poor. Having said that, it's easy to plant a lot of seeds to a pot. So if you want to have a go, you could collect some seeds yourself if you know where some millennia is growing in the wild. Or you could order some. Simply sow them onto a pot of seed sowing compost in early autumn and then leave in a sheltered spot or in a cold frame over winter because they really do need that cold weather to break the seed dormancy. Alternatively, for the people that want this right here, right now, you could just go out and buy one. And they can be found in lots of garden centres and specialist grass nurseries. Um, we quite like Knoll. And also a benefit of Knoll is that I believe they're almost exclusively peat free now as well. So it's yes, a good they're nursery. on Dogwood Day's peat free list. Yes, they're in the, in, in the good list of nurseries. And there are also loads of cultivars, many of them with the RHS Award of Garden Merit. That's the AGM. So here are just a few of them to get you going. For a compact form, not 2.5 metres tall, try Millennium Morhex or Pool Peterson. There's also a variegated variety, which is simply called Variegata, and a particularly dark stem variety, which is called Edith Dudzus. I think that's how you pronounce that. And finally, we have taller classics like Winspiel and also Carl Forster, which can very easily reach over two metres tall, so look very elegant at the back of a border. Yeah, if you want one of those taller, more ornamental varieties, then buy, buy a plant, a named variety, rather than sowing from seed. Yes, indeed. So I think that basically wraps up our return of Native Plant of the Week. Yeah, we've crammed things in today, haven't we? Been jam-packed. Coming up in the next couple of episodes, just to tantalise our listeners... Wet your whistles. Exactly. We have, next time, an episode all about the science of what is going on in your compost bin. Oh, this is apt, because I'm in the middle of making our very new compost bin in our garden. Exciting. Yeah, so we're going to delve deep into the soil and work out what the bacteria and fungi are actually up to because normally when people talk about compost they tell you what to put in it but not actually what is going on inside so we're going to cover that for you and the time after we're looking at bees aren't we we are we're going to be reading gene vernon's book on bees i think it's the secret life of bees yes so you can buy it and read along over the next couple of weeks after that we're going to be talking about rewilding and gardening because of our trip to nep and And because it's been in the news chelsea the rewilding yeah, garden exactly it's all got a bit controversial so we're going to stick our two penneth worth in aren't we i love how we're going to be three months after chelsea happened but you know yeah, we like to give relevant. a considered 
yes. opinion. We like to think things through before we say things, do the research. And I think that's probably enough wetting of whistles for now. Get in touch. Facebook, Twitter, you know where we are. Links to everything that we've talked about are in the show notes. And so until the next time, keep gardening. Bye. Bye. No, so we've chosen Melinia Carulia. Yep, so we've chosen Melinia Carulia. I think that's how you spell it. Uh, I would it. say Carulia. Carulia, okay. But I don't know if that's right. That's what I've always said. Carulia, okay. So we've chosen Melinia Carulia. <laughs> <laughs> so we've... There, we start that again.